Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. Today, I am happy to introduce to our listeners someone I met at our last GMTA conference. Let me just take a moment to say these conferences have proven to be wonderful opportunities to meet colleagues from all across the state and have become one of the highlights of the academic year for me, my colleagues, and even my students. But enough of that. I'm excited to be speaking with Esther Park today, so let's turn our attention to that conversation. Hello, Esther. Um, Hello, everybody. I am so honored to be here to be speaking and introducing about myself because I'm a newbie here in the state. um, And it was actually my very first GMTA conference. Um, So I transferred my um, membership from Tennessee this year because I am the new piano professor at Schwab School of Music at CSU. Before then, as I said, I come from Tennessee. I taught at East Tennessee State University for past eight years. Um, And that was my first job, which I really enjoyed and learned a great deal. And I am thrilled to be at Schwab and at Georgia and learning just different ways how things are done. But to give you a little bit of an intro about myself, I was born in Korea and I came to the States when I was nine to study at Juilliard's pre-college program. Uh, So I guess one can say that I was born in Korea, raised in New Jersey, and I did undergrad and grad at Juilliard um, with Feta Kaplinski. Then I found myself in Hanover, Germany for about three years, studying with Mr. Bernd Gutzke. Then I came back to Yale School of Music for AD, MMA, and DMA degrees. So I was in New Haven when I got the call about a sabbatical replacement job at ETSU. And here I am uh, about 10 years after. I teach mostly at, here at Schwab, I teach mostly applied piano lessons. This semester I had to teach piano ped and piano lid, which is usually done by my other colleagues, but it just happened so that um, this semester I was teaching them as well as collab class and chamber music. So I, I wear a lot of piano related hats, but it's always fun. and. It was ton of fun to meet a lot of new colleagues at GMTA convention at Kennesaw State. Definitely different from Tennessee because we hold our state conference in May or June, early, early June, late May. So it was definitely different to be attending one in the fall semester. But I kind of liked it just because part of the, the conference featured the most recent MTNA winners. You know, often we send our students to the auditions and we don't know who won or who they are or how they play. So it was a great opportunity for me as well as our students to hear, you know, who were the winners and to be able to celebrate them. So I thought that was really wonderful. And I loved all the sessions, including the the guest artist. So yeah, I think Georgia is a great place. And I've heard a great deal about lots of wonderful music making. And I'm happy to be joining one as a one of the newbies. 
Well, we're so glad to have you in the state of Georgia, and it was so nice to see you at the conference. So I hope we'll continue to bump into each other more. Now, I will say that I was looking over your bio online on the CSU website, and it mentioned that you have a piano duo with your sister. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I do have a professional duo with my sister, uh, my younger sister, who's teaching at UCF, University of Central Florida in Orlando. And, you know, it's funny because we had a duo group that we were kind of put in as a chamber music back at pre-college. And then after that, we just kind of went our ways until when I was in Tennessee and I had my colleagues who wanted to do Bartok, Sonata for two piano and percussion. So then I was like, well, I guess I can call my sister and see if she's up to it. And that was kind of the beginning of our, our duo. Of course, you know, at Juilliard, I had a lot of duo friends who's actually active professionally, like Anderson and Rowe are my friends and the, the five Browns. But I just don't know why we never ever thought that you know, we would kind of be a professional duo. And, you know, so we kind of gathered our heads together and it's so much fun uh, to play together rather than, you know, piano is kind of in a, in a way a lonely instrument. You're on your own on stage. So it's super fun to, you know, join forces and play all these fun music. Yeah, we've done a few competitions abroad and domestically. And uh, I think the Chicago um, Duo International Competition was kind of a great point where, you know, our careers kind of, you know, as a, as a duo were introduced. In fact, we'll be going back to Chicago Duo Festival this summer. And there has been some collaborations with, uh, such as like Gershwin Institute. We've premiered, I mean, test performed and premiered the uh, American in Paris that's been arranged for two pianos by uh, Logan Skelton at Michigan. So we'll be playing that and some other pieces. And, you know, I think piano duo playing is such a fun genre, which is also very intimate. So it's been really fun. So I have two follow-up questions to that. One is obviously you're a very high-level pianist, but perhaps unusual is that not only are you a high-level pianist, but your sister is also. What was that like growing up in a household where both kids, and I don't know if you have other siblings, were so intense with music? So I think growing up, I feel like I was kind of the destined one to, to do piano. And my sister always like had the choice of not choosing piano. And, you know, like I started actually with violin when I was three. And my sister was also given like a second instrument. I think she did cello for a while. And I guess we just like both gravitated toward piano. You know, since I'm the older one, I can say that maybe she just like wanted to do what I did. But I don't know. It's it's a uh, point of contention. You can you can maybe interview her and hear from her uh, perspective. But, you know, it is it is unusual, you know, because she could have done completely something else. And I do remember my parents like telling her that, look, like you don't have to do this. You know, we have one daughter who's in music, like we're fine for you to do something else. And I remember telling myself, I was like, okay, then they never gave me that option. (laughs) 
Although, I mean, you know, I dabbled like, you know, like when you go through high school and you, you find all these fascinating topics. So like, you know, probably like my freshman year high school, I was going to be like a U.S. historian and then I was going to be a heart surgeon for like a while. And then I stuck with piano and I think my sister, she must have really enjoyed playing piano and behind me, you know, four years, like we literally studied with the same teachers just four years apart. So I do remember she telling me like her hating being at Juilliard as a freshman, because if you're freshman in college, you kind of want that anonymity of like just being a nobody. But she was Esther's sister. So I think she did not have as enjoyable of a, you know, freshman year as she did. But I think she found her voice. And, and you know, I think there was a, I know there, there are some competitiveness in siblings. Thankfully, we never had that. I think partially because she was four years younger that, like, we really never competed against each other. And then when the time came so that we were actually doing same competitions, like, I think it was more like, okay, we're a team. Like, you know, if you do better, like, great. You know, make sure you beat that other competitor kind of thing as a team rather than, like, I have to be better than her. And I think also, like, you know, me being an, uh, an older sister, I kind of felt like I had to take care of my younger sister. And now, like, I totally enjoy playing for her just because she'll give me the most honest feedback. And until a certain point, like, I was the only one who gave her feedback. And I guess my younger sister just didn't feel like she was old enough or she knew enough to, like, comment on my my playing. But now, I, like, I absolutely enjoy how much ever brutal her feedback is because I, I know what she says is 100%, you know, from a good, good heart and also trustworthy because I, I trust her musicianship. Yeah, I think that was going to be my second follow-up was what is the communication like for you guys since you are duo partners and and sisters? That certainly adds a new dynamic to that relationship. It's professional and family relationship simultaneously. Right. I think it's it happens like it, there's a lot of couple pian duo pianists too. So, you know, we know the sweet spots to press if we have to. Though I think, you know, again, like we've been in existence almost a decade as a professional group. Earlier, I think we went there like, you know, if we have to do get out like we did. But now I think we know when to step off the gas pedal if, if we have to. I know that I get a little preachy. Like, again, it's a, an older sibling kind of thing. And, you know, now she'll be like, okay, preach. Then I know, like, okay, it, like, you know, I'm telling her what to do. And I know she has her own voice as well. So I think we we are also developing as, you know, professionals and respecting each other's boundaries and, and thoughts and trying to be pro professional. And I'm also giving her a lot more responsibilities, such as like, you know, booking things, because like, it was all on me. And then now, you know, she's like, okay, there's this convention that we can go play at and, and stuff. So I think it's it's kind of, it, we're, we're balancing and, you know, it will be a lifelong kind of a journey. But yeah, we're, I, I, 
can't I can't complain. It's been fun. So um, you've started touching on this, but you've participated in several international competitions and won prizes at those uh, competitions. What is it like preparing for such high level competitions? It's kind of like it's intense and you put everything into it. And now looking back, it's kind of, you know, like I, I still follow all these international competitions, especially like this day and age, you know, they give us the live streaming and stuff. And I look at the contestants put their heart and soul and everything into it. And, you know, I, I remember like I was that person, you know, like I did almost every, you know, big name competition, you name it, I probably did it. And that was my life. I feel that it was a necessary step. Was all of it necessary? Probably not. I probably did a little too much. But, you know, through that, I have this, A, it made me a better pianist in the sense that, you know, you strive to be at the best. You know, it's like Olympians, you know, you, you challenge yourself, you stretch yourself thin to push yourself to the limits to see where things are at. And I still tell my students that, like, you know, cherish those moments when you're pre preparing for these international competitions, when you're practicing is the only thing that you are focusing on, you're doing, you know, eight, 10 hours a day of practicing. In a weird way, I really do miss it because now two hours, three hours, four hours that I get on a daily basis, it's a blessing because, you know, you get so tired after uh, a full day of teaching and, you know, you have like family to go back to and feed them and, and whatnot. It's a time that I don't want to necessarily do all over again. And yet I do miss because I did have a have a goal that I was striving for. So I wish that maybe I didn't take such serious thing. You know, it was it was kind of like it was life or death kind of thing. And I know all of the kids that are, you know, preparing for Clyburn and, you know, Queen Elizabeth, you think like this is it or not. The world is much bigger place. And also, you know, I tell my students like, look, Clyburn comes every four years, which means there will be a new winner every four years. So it's one, of, it, you know, you should look at it as a part of a progress. And that progress is something that you should cherish, not necessarily whether I win or lose. So, you know, it's it was definitely fun times also because, you know, it, it would be it's kind of like a community of pianists from all over the world. And, you know, you kind of sometimes you don't talk to each other because, you know, like you want to beat that person. But also, you know, you become best friends. And then, you know, you meet in Rome. And then the next time you meet in Poland, and the next time you meet in Japan, and you kind of, you know, uh, catch up on people. And now some of them are like professors at different institutions. So now we're ending up, you know, sending our students to them. So I think, you know, it's a big happy circle that came to, I, I mean, I guess we're still drawing on that circle, but it's, it's part of development. Yeah, happy memories. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into that world and that kind of life. So a little later on in the episode, we will hear a recording of you playing a Chopin ballad. Can you tell us a little bit about this piece? What is special about it to you? So I am sharing Chopin Ballade Number no. 2 in F major. 
or A minor, depending on who you're talking to. I think that's what this polarity of this music is so tantalizing is not too big of a word but like it really draws me because as you will hear it starts with such beautiful and tranquil f major section and then all of a sudden there's this torrential rain in a minor and then you go back and forth and back and forth and you know when you think of chopin like people either think of him as like the sickly guy who was always miserable or like the guy who wrote that you know beautiful chopin nocturnes and and lyrical and all that and you know it really shows that chopin did have duality in his his life as much as you know and and also ironically this piece is uh, or very fittingly dedicated to schumann who we all know had multiple different characters and it's very schumannesque in that sense that you know this bipolar almost like um, sections are wedged um, against each other and it kind of goes back to my competition days because I did play this in one of my Chopin competition tries. So, you know, it's an old friend that I am happy to have reconnected with. So, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your journey with this piece. So it sounds like it's something that you played before for a competition. How long is this journey between the competition versus now? And and were there earlier editions of you playing this even as a younger student? Oh, yes. Yes, it's out there. I think it was 2010 Chopin competition in Warsaw. Uh, I played it on the first round, and I believe it's still out there on YouTube. So you might be able to find it. So, you know, I play, you know, it's funny because now I look at the music that I used and I have two different teachers. So definitely Veda Kaplinsky's writing is on it, which means I played it when I was at Juilliard, which would be, you know, sometime in the early 2000s. And then I also have my German teacher's writing, which is like 2006 to about roughly 10. So it's, it's kind of funny to see all these different influences and what they told me. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, and then, you know, revisiting, I look at their markings and I'm just like, yep, I remember all these, you know, issues that I had. Some technical, mostly playing too fast and getting myself in trouble, which I tell my students all the time. <laughs> so, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a big circle uh, that comes and goes around. So it's fun. And I think all those years of practice never betrays you because now as much as it still is hard, but it's somewhat comforting to play these pieces that I practiced really 10,000 plus hours. Because in a weird sense, they're, they're quite comfortable to play. They're not at all easy to play. Um, don't get me wrong. It's just that somehow I feel comfortable playing them at, you know, any given time. So another note for students, right? Practice those pieces and keep them close because you'll come back to it and you'll feel like you're coming, coming home. Yeah, I think that's something that I try to communicate to my students because it wasn't always clear to me when I was a student. You know, we would learn something, perform it, and then set it aside, and we would move on to new pieces and not realizing that those pieces that we've set aside, they will come back again 
and again and again. And every time it comes back, it you mature with it. And I think something happens in our subconscious that sinks in. And so you were talking about achieving like a level of comfort, uh, both musical comfort and physical comfort that is achieved by just setting it aside, bring it back, setting it aside and bringing it back. So you've hinted at this, but um, I'm going to just go ahead and ask this question. What are some of the challenges that one might encounter in learning this ballad? Right. So this ballad is notorious for two things. Again, you know, the, the serene part is all about control, right? Because Chopin really writes a page or two long phrases. It's not like, you know, four bars, four bars, whatever. It's really literally, I believe the first phrase is like one page long or something. And, you know, you're most likely starting this piece cold and you're supposed to kind of get into this lull and you know you don't want it to stick out and you know when you when you're fidgety when you're starting you're cold you're you're you know you're going from zero motion to full motion so it's really hard to to convey that sense of endlessness and tranquility and also he repeats what that c for eight or nine times and you know you want it to sound as if it's been sounding ever since who knows gotten you know how long and it, you just happen to be in that ride as you you come uh, you start the piece so there's that that portion of control and you know making this endless line musical line and then the the b section which is you know the torrential rain that has right hand arpeggiated 16th figure with the left hand octave coming up so you know we're dealing with contrasting motion and then you know it's it's all all the the contrast you know you you your right hand is coming down your left hand is coming up and then the next uh next measure it's doing an, another opposite uh, motion. So, and also, you know, Chopin really doesn't give you any preparation to it. You really have to go cold. So, you know, there is that mental preparation as well as physical preparation. And of course, the notorious last two pages with the, the repetitions with the chord, it's super mean. And thankfully, I did, I, you know, I learned this piece with Ms. Kaplinski, and she really helped me physically with it. She's one of the Taubman disciples, and, you know, it's basically an idea that the human body shouldn't fight the instrument. It should work with it. Thereby, there's a lot of arm motions, and and when it comes to repetitions, not to repeat at the same place in the keyboard. Yeah, like the key key itself is long, so use all of that distance, thereby not repeating the notes at the same exact point, which locks the arm. So I think that was one of the most important thing that I learned from Ms. Kopinski that really helped me to play this piece well rather well yeah those are i mean many challenges but those are the three most notorious pieces that might have made few people cry about <laughs> including myself yeah thank you for those pointers i've played that bullet and yeah the ending is brutal and so i'm gonna have to go back and revisit and think about what you just shared with us yeah 
So if our audience members want to learn more about you or find more recordings by you, where can they go? So I have always resisted this idea of recordings just because A, I hate recordings Yeah, in terms of like recording sessions. You know, the stress of it, I think, makes my playing more or less rigid and which means then there's a lot more editing going on, which, you know, is very against the idea and notion of, you know, live recording with the conversation between the the performer and the audience. And I, I just find it very artificial. So I really have been avoiding, but... I also know that it is important to leave some sort of legacy, I suppose. So I am now finally kind of coming around and telling myself, yes, you do need to record. So most likely there will be a recording project coming up first as a piano duo because I need to drum up my courage to record by myself. So I, I envision something coming up in the very near future within a year span with first piano duo CD, but um, there hopefully will be piano solo for my own. However, there are few recordings that are out there on YouTube should you want to look me up. And mostly they're really from decades ago when I was a competition horse. <laughs> so you'll you'll find a few younger Esther in those recordings. And you may actually find me on NPR uh, periodically. I find myself on performance today for the Chamber Music Festival that I go to in June, Geneva Music Festival. They usually send our recordings out there. So uh, you might find me there as well as YouTube again. Well, thank you for sharing that. This was, this is unplanned, but I just want to ask, do you ever go back to listen to your younger self and find yourself on YouTube? And what is that like for you if you do? Yes and no. I don't YouTube myself. You know who do though? Martha Argerich is super into YouTube. And she YouTubes till like two, three in the morning. And that's what she does. And she really loves listening to younger talents, which is like horrifying to think. <laughs> As you know, like, because she told me, she's like, oh, yeah, I heard you on YouTube. And I'm like, no, you did not. But anyhow, so no, you, I, I am not like Martha. I don't listen to myself on YouTube much. But when and on very rare occasion, because, you know, like my husband or uh, his family member would be like, hey, I found you. And this is what I heard. I cherish that younger version of me, which is often quite athletic. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, look at me. I was young and I was so green. So, you know, it's it's embarrassing most of the time, you know, like, why was I doing that? Or like, why did I think my hair was good then? <laughs> you know? But um, we'll see in about 20 years how I think of it. <laughs> well, Esther, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable. And um, it has been a joy getting to know you more. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students. And now let's take a listen.